0: Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association.
1: Welcome to Law in the Family, where we discuss issues and topics related to the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. I'm Aaron Weems, a family law attorney in Fox Rothschild's Bluebell, Montgomery County office. And today is recurring guest, Helen Cassell, a partner <laughs> at Hangley, Aranchik, Siegel, Pudlin, and Schiller, and one of the leading voices on LGBTQ legal issues. Helen is with me today to discuss a recent Superior Court case that can have significant implications in the assistive reproductive technology area and for the LGBTQ community. Helen, welcome back to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me.
1: So, Helen, I became aware of this case primarily through your quotes on AboveTheLaw.com in which you were quoted about a recent Superior Court case that deals with an issue related to assisted reproductive technology, but also with the assertion of parentage. So why don't you take us through this case and give us a little bit of background as to the issues that we're dealing with in this one.
2: Sure. So this is a case that came out of Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas, decided by the Superior Court in a three-judge panel, Aaron, in February of this year. And basically involved a same-sex couple, two women, That were married, which is important in the facts of this case, were married shortly after they were married. They decided to start a family. They decided that the one woman would carry the child. They used an unknown sperm donor. And as as typically happens with same sex couples, especially two women, they kind of have to do a lot of planning in order to start a family. And that's exactly what these two individuals did. And they did it all together, pretty much. And long story short, as it relates to the facts of the case, the two women married, started planning this family, used the sperm donor, and the one woman did get pregnant. During the course of the pregnancy, both women were involved in, for example, the fertility treatments, the actual insemination, the costs of of the insemination. And then after the woman got pregnant, involved in the obstetric appointments, et cetera, they were kind of doing it all together. And as a result of going through a sperm bank, they had to actually sign an agreement Aaron, as oftentimes they do, to contract with the fertility clinic. And the facts suggest that both women were a party to that contract, except one woman was named as the patient, and the other woman, who was the non-biological parent, was named as the partner. In addition to entering into that contract, they also entered into, which oftentimes same-sex couples do, a separate contract that they they went to a family law attorney and met with the family law attorney and did basically like an intended parentage contract, which oftentimes I do with my same sex couples who are planning to have a child. They want a contract kind of before the child is born to make sure that, it, for example, if anything ever happens to the biological mom during the course of the pregnancy, that the non-biological mother would have a right to make decisions, would take custody of the child, et cetera. It's kind of like this safeguard that we put into place. And it also kind of contracts out the intent of both parties, like what they both intend for their roles to be with this child, since technically only one party is the biological parent. So that's exactly what they did. They went to a family law attorney, drafted this agreement, signed the agreement before the child was born that made it very clear that the intention was that non-bio mom would be a parent to this child. And the intention was that they would eventually go through the adoption process to secure the parentage rights. Okay. Shortly after they entered into that contract, they split up. They separated. They physically separated during the period of time that the biological mother was pregnant. So prior to the child's birth, they separate and a divorce complaint is filed. And along with that divorce complaint, the non-biological mom files a petition asking the Philadelphia trial court judge to enter an agreement to make sure that when the child is born, that her name is put on the birth certificate and that she has parentage rights.
1: Let me stop you there real fast, because that creates sort of a just almost an interesting procedural fact or point, which is that they did this under the context of the divorce action. So contrast that with someone, as you said, that being married is important for a host of reasons. One of which that it occurs to me is that they were able to get this issue before a judge rather than having to wait until the child was born, because otherwise there'd be no avenue to address the issues in advance.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that you raise that because, in fact, the biological mom had one of her issues on appeal was that the judge did not have subject matter jurisdiction as it related to this case. And if you read the majority's opinion, the majority opinion didn't really address that because they didn't have to. However, they did say in DICTA that the judge did have subject matter jurisdiction as it relates to this case because we do that quite often in cases involving fertility and surrogacy. So it is not out of the question for a court to kind of enter this pre-parentage sort of contract because they often do it in surrogacy context. So the subject matter jurisdiction was not an issue, and the judge correctly took jurisdiction over the matter and was able to enter an order.
1: You're right. You know, they, they sort of deferred they, or demurred on the other issues. Uh, as outlined on page 10 of the opinion, the question before the court was whether there was an enforceable contract in place that conferred parental rights on the litigant, in this case, uh, the the litigant's name is is Junior Glover versus Junior is the uh, name of the decision. So we're really dealing with just like a contractual right.
2: Yeah, and that that's that's kind of where the superior court got it wrong, right? And that's that's what the dissent said. And again, so it was a three core panel, so it was a two to one decision, and the majority basically said this is just about the contract. That's it. The four corners of the contract, and, and for the most part, they said, you can't really look at anything else. And if you look at the four corners of the contract, then what's very clear, according to the Superior Court, was that this the non-biological mom, who was Glover in this case, did not have parental rights, did not contract for parental rights. That The contract didn't go far enough. For example, it said in the contract, and the, and the majority said this in their opinion, that They understood that in order to secure the parentage rights, they had to go through the adoption process. So, that in and of itself, according to the Superior Court, meant she didn't really have parental rights. So, how are we going to give her parental rights? So, she never contracted for it. So, for the most part, what the trial court said was, and the trial court looked at this in a more global way, which makes sense, right? Because he's the one hearing the the witnesses, the evidence, the facts. And it looks like these attorneys, especially the attorney representing Glover, who is the non biological mom really put forth a good case. Here, are, and it's because the facts were totally on her side, which was this woman was completely engaged in the process, financially contributed to the process, contributed to the process. The two of them were married. The two of them went through the process in that they went through a contract in the, with the fertility clinic. They even separately went to a private family law attorney to outline their intent with each other, quite frankly, Aaron, that doesn't often happen with these couples. I mean, they just, most of these same-sex couples these days rely on the security Well, we're married, we're having a kid, we don't need to do anything else, which is really interesting that here, these two women kind of went above and beyond to make sure that Glover's rights were going to be secured. And the trial court kind of recognized that, took into consideration the demeanor of the witnesses, the credibility of the witnesses, and really even said, and I think the superior court majority said, that the trial court determined that Glover, the biological mother, wasn't credible, that it was unreasonable for this trial court to come to the conclusion that the biological mom never intended for Junior to be a parent, that based on everything he saw, and despite that, despite that, the superior court still comes down with the decision that this contract doesn't go far enough And junior does not have parental rights.
1: Some of the things I found interesting was the contract discussions or in terms of the contracts themselves, the labels that are given to the parties. Right. So we're we're, one is client for the cryobank, for instance. One is client. The other is co-intended parent with the fertility clinic. I believe the characterization was patient and partner. If we're looking at the contracts, we're seeing the contract language reflects certainly an intent by the parties. The point about the fact that they acknowledge that adoption is necessary. I found very interesting. What's your take on that type of planning? You said a little bit that these people were really on the ball with planning. What else do you think could they have done to have closed that perceived loop?
2: That's a great question. And the answer is nothing. There isn't really anything more these two parties could have done to try to secure the non-biological partner's rights with the exception of once the child is born to go through the adoption process, which they absolutely intended to do based on that contract. That's why it's so unbelievable as to how the majority comes down with this decision. And if you read the dissent, the dissent kind of gives that roadmap, really, and this is what I had said in the Above the Law article, gives the roadmap to either an en banc decision or the Supreme Court, if they're going to decide to take this case, as to what really needs to happen in order for this to be the, the, what I would characterize as the right decision here. I don't know if these two parties could have done anything more.
1: You mentioned the dissent. And in the dissent, they reference a prior Supreme Court case listed as the initial CG, where they rejected parentage because there was no biological connection, no adoption or contract, but specifically did not intend to foreclose the possibility of attaining recognition through other means. And and, and so they, you know, even in that case, even though you know findings, you know, denied parentage, but they still basically set out to the world. This is an issue that we have to contend with and we have to find a way in which we can address these types of issues. I mean, And it recognizes the, the prevalence of assisted reproductive technology and procedures that this is, you know, this is very much a part of our lives and a part of our, our legal fabric.
2: Absolutely. And, and what's really interesting, Aaron, is that the majority in this case, in, in the Glover case, if you read it, they kind of use CG against the non-biological mom. They say, well, you know, here's what the Supreme Court did in CG. When if you read the dissent. It's almost like they're skewing it in that CG, what they were looking for, Aaron, was this kind of a case. I was involved in CG in that I contributed to an amicus brief on behalf of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. And I watched the argument on the decision, and they wanted the facts to be different in that case. It's almost like the Supreme Court panel wanted a different outcome, but they didn't have a choice based on the facts were vastly different. The parties were never married. The contribution from the non-biological mom in the pregnancy was vastly different than what it was here. And even though they were together when the child was born and the non-biological parent played a part in the child's life, she moved away. And there were years that went by before she actually filed for custody. So it was a very different factual scenario. And they had no intended parenting agreement. They had no contract with a fertility clinic. They didn't have any of those. And I think the Supreme Court was saying we would need something more. Guess what? They have it. This Glover case is it. This is exactly what they were looking for. And I think that's what the dissent said.
1: And the dissent makes reference to intent-based parentage, which the majority opinion somewhat does not spend much time on, but takes a, a paragraph or so to say, ah, we, we're not really going to get into that. You know, that's that's sort of a too complicated or too too amorphous for us to, re- to really address. And uh, and then when you read the dissent, you do get the reference to the uh, CG case, and you do see, put a little bit of context as to what that phrase actually means. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what intent-based parentage is supposed to
2: prove? Sure. So what that would mean is that what we're looking at is the big picture, right? That's what I mentioned in the beginning. We're looking at the actions of the parties, the contributions of the parties. What role did they each play here in trying to plan this family? Doesn't that sort of make sense? And I get that maybe you could say, well, wait a minute, that's a slippery slope. That that could take us down a road that maybe we don't want to go down. Except that really what the dissent is saying is it's a matter of equity. It's a matter of fairness. As we look at, did both parties contribute to the planning of this family in some way And can we decipher their intent in doing so? And it's kind of unfair for the majority to say, well, no, we're only looking at the contract. And I think they did that because that was really the best way to overturn the trial court. Because if you're now looking at the intent of the parties, now you're looking at the discretion of the judge and they don't get the right to overturn that. And here... The trial court judge did a really good job of kind of outlining all of the facts that were presented to him and how he used that in coming to this ultimate determination. So, you know, the intent based parenting means maybe we have this contract, maybe we don't. But let's look at the actions of the parties as it related to planning this family.
1: And I thought one of the things that the dissent also articulated was. If we're going to talk contract law, then let's talk about what contracts are. And contracts are designed to protect parties' expectations. And it kind of becomes a little bit of like law school, you know, first year law school. 101, right. No, what's a contract? You know, offer consideration, mutual reliance, the the whole standards. And here they kind of laid out, you know, was there mutual assent? Absolutely. Was there consideration? Absolutely. Were the terms sufficiently clear? And to your point about the intent-based parentage, they laid out all the things that these folks did to demonstrate their mutual expectations. You know, junior paid half of all the expenses. There's a shared emotional role, shared the IVF duties, you know, with one handling the injections for the other, all the efforts leading to the pregnancy and after, which by the way, from a timing standpoint, I mean, they really went from concept to conception very quickly. I mean, they 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 were they did. this this was this all happened in a pretty pretty short time frame. The facts of this case, it was really about a year altogether. So the dissent, not to get off on a tangent, but the dissent did sort of make that argument that you could apply contract principles to this, and it still works.
2: Absolutely. It's almost like the dissent said, okay, if you want to look at just the contract, then let's do that. And you're right. Let's look at all of the requirements that we need for a contract and kind of outlined it like you said. You said, what more could they have done? And the answer, like I said, is nothing. And really, the question is, what would a reasonable person expect in reviewing these facts at the end of this? I don't know how you'd come to the, any other conclusion other than a reasonable person would expect that both parties intended to start this family together and to be parents. And the reality is that the only thing that non biological mom did that was wrong was the relationship failed. That had nothing to do with their decision to have a family. So now go back to let's apply this case not in the LGBTQ context. Let's apply it to a straight couple that gets married that a husband isn't able to have sperm in order to impregnate his wife, so they use a sperm donor. They go through the exact same process, exact same process, but they split up right before the child was born. I mean, it has to be the same outcome, right? This isn't necessarily an LGBTQ case. This affects families across the Commonwealth who oftentimes, like you said in the beginning of this podcast, now we are finding IBS and fertility a very common way to start a family. And I think if this legislature doesn't act, And the Supreme Court has to. And I really do hope they take this case.
1: And it's worth noting, Pennsylvania doesn't really have any assisted reproductive technology laws on the books. It is somewhat a gray area where people are trying to get it right. And I think what we've seen, I think this case shows there's been an evolution of how people have tried to close the gaps on some of these risks. And yet you still, you know, there's still kinks in the armor, right?
2: Absolutely. And you know what? I mean, in thinking back, because maybe somebody would say, well, wait a minute. If they intended her to be a parent, then why did they even mention adoption? If this is all that they needed, then why did they even mention adoption in that contract? And I think what it shows, Aaron, is that there is a lack of knowledge or education on behalf of the superior court in this case in understanding why that would have been necessary, because what perhaps they don't understand is that while maybe they're in a friendly state as it relates to Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania would have put both parents on the birth certificate and would have considered this woman a parent, which I'm not quite sure, but let's say they would have if they stayed in an intact marriage, right? If they never separated. The reality is if they travel to other states, that may not have been the case. That's why these individuals and these LGBTQ situations, they go through the adoption process. And quite frankly, that's why we suggest perhaps that straight couples do the same thing. The adoption is just an additional layer of protection. It's not the be all and end all, but it absolutely is something that should happen to protect them going forward. And I don't think the majority understood that because they relied heavily on that language in that contract.
1: There was also a little bit of discussion of about implied contracts. And one of the thoughts that occurs to me is, is the fact that the non-biological mother is the one asserting this claim. You know, I think we're almost used to someone trying to avoid a responsibility, whereas this is someone that's seeking the responsibility. Do you think that weighs in as a factor at all?
2: I'm not sure, but it's interesting because the Ferguson case, which is what the majority had mentioned, that was the situation where there was an individual who is asserting the rights in order for, you know, an obligation of support, for example. So, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but it is interesting to see what the cake would have been.
1: Moving forward, where do you think this goes from here?
2: Well, I can tell you, I do know that the trial court attorney who lost on the appeal has filed an en banc petition. So they're waiting to hear from the superior court to see whether or not there will be an en banc panel, which would mean nine appointed superior court judges would hear the case again to see if, you know, whether or not it would be the same outcome. And I know that they've already applied for a certification for the Supreme Court to take the case, which they've done as a precautionary measure. So my hope would be, If the Supreme Court would take the case or an en banc decision would would come to a different conclusion, because if we're left with this as the decision, which, by the way, is a memorandum decision, it is not reported. I think we're still in flux and we need some certainty for these families and not just LGBTQ families.
1: Right, like you said, this could apply to everybody, and, and any number of different people and circumstances. Different circumstances yep. could find themselves in this situation. Well, thank you for this. Yeah, you know, yeah. we're recording this on March 31st. So, is there any any kind of timing that we could expect relative to when we might know about the Ambank argument?
2: No, I. We're we're all kind of waiting Wait. every day, waiting with bated breath. Yes.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, listen. Thank you very much for giving us this analysis. I think it's something Absolutely. that all of us need to keep an eye on as it works its way through the appellate system. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking with you again to see how this all plays out.
2: Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: You got it, Helen. Thank you for being here. Okay. Thank you again to Helen Kassel for joining us to discuss the Glover versus Junior appeal. And thank you all for listening to Pennsylvania Bar Association's Law and the Family. I'm Aaron Weems. If you have something to share, a topic you want to hear about, or you want to keep the conversation going, please contact me by email at aweems at foxrothchild.com or find me on Twitter at Aaron Weems, A-T-T-Y. Thank you again, and I look forward to speaking with you all soon on topics related to the Pennsylvania
0: family lawyer law in the family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association family law section to learn more or to join the section visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org and be sure to follow us on Facebook LinkedIn and Twitter and to catch up on every episode join us at anchor.fm law in the family a reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation this information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship the opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.